Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. On this podcast, we discuss issues of interest to the local, national, and international endurance community. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all your visits and likes on the Facebook page. Thanks for visiting the show notes over in the blog. Uh, Happy end of spring break to all of you. We took a little bit of a spring break here at the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Um, And it's also the tail end of what's considered to be one of the greatest sports weeks of the entire year. Um, I'm sure many of you enjoyed the NCAA men's and women's basketball tournaments that wrapped up this week. The uh, championship men's game, which I saw, was a thrilling victory by the Villanova Wildcats over the North Carolina Tar Heels. Uh, I was thrilled by it, given that I'm not a Tar Heels fan, but I'm sure that many other people who are Tar Heels fan were not all that fired up about it. It was also opening day for pro baseball this week. The Masters Golf Tournament finished up today here in Georgia uh, with a pretty exciting finish, as it turned out. Uh, A little bit lesser known, perhaps, but those of you who are collegiate hockey fans, the Frozen Four was this week, and spoiler alert, the uh, University of North Dakota Fighting Hawks, I think they are, uh, were able to triumph over the Quinnipiac Bobcats in the final of that game uh, for the second time in a few years. Um, And in addition, my favorite pro sport to watch, pro cycling, uh, had two of its major races over the course of the past week. The Tour of Flanders was last Sunday, and it was a super exciting race, uh, won by the world champion Peter Sagan. Uh, And then today, the so-called Queen of the Classics, uh, Perry Roubaix, the Hell of the North, was held uh, in France. Uh, and it was also a very, but very, very thrilling, but very different race from the Tour of Flanders. Uh, it was won by Matthew Heyman. I thought about not saying that because I didn't want to give a spoiler alert, but I can't imagine anybody who's a big fan of cycling is going to listen to this podcast prior to actually watching the recap of Perry Roubaix or the Tour of Flanders. Anyway. I've been thinking a lot about Kyle Pease and Brent Pease over the course of the past couple of weeks. I mentioned that again last week as well, um, and and really have been continuing to focus on this idea of, of spreading the enrichment of endurance sports. Continuing to think about how a wider array of people can be enriched by the things that we do, by the swimming, the biking, the running, um, all the various things that we do. As I said before, I know that I have been changed and bettered, I like to think, by my endurance sporting endeavors. Um, I know that it strengthened my marriage. I know that it's made me a better person. I know that it's made me a better, a deeper thinker. Um, and I really appreciate the fact that the Kyle Pease Foundation and other groups out there are spreading that enrichment. They're helping other people be enriched in the same way by endurance sports that I have and that so many of us have. And that got me thinking a lot this week, or of course the past couple of weeks since uh, since our last episode, uh, about women and their role in sports. Uh, March was Women's History Month, as many of you know. Uh, I coach several women. They're really inspiring. They're really hardworking. Um, one in particular last week had a brilliant performance, which capped a fantastic block over the course of the past month that saw her get a PR in the half marathon, a long-awaited PR in the half marathon. Uh, and then a, a brilliant fifth place in her age group performance at the Oceanside 70.3. Um, that athlete, Chrissy, was the athlete that I've been working with for as long as any athletes that are currently on my roster, any unbroken uh, uh, streaks. I've been working over with her for three years now. Uh, and I was really proud of her and was thinking a lot about the impact that, that working with her has had on me um, and the enrichment I've gotten from my relationship with her as a coach and an athlete. Um, And then I was considering that also against the backdrop 
of the legal action that was taken by the U.S. women's national soccer team. Uh, Many of you probably saw that last Thursday they filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, but we're going to come back to that at the end of the podcast and talk a little bit more about that here in just a couple of minutes. What I want to do first, though, is I want to talk a little bit about where we are right now with women's sports. And and you can't really talk about where we are with women's sports and with women's research in sports and and the impact of sports on women and how sports have perhaps enriched women's lives uh, without also talking about, without first talking about Title IX. Uh, Most people have heard of Title IX. It was part of the 1972 Education Amendments of 1972. Um, And it began with a preamble that said, quote, No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So it was specifically aimed at educational opportunities. Now, it gets a lot of attention for the impact it's had on sports, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But its effect on educational programs is undeniable. In 1972, women earned just 7% of all the law degrees in the United States, and now it's about half. 1972 wasn't all that long ago. It was just before I was born. It's only about 40 years ago. Women at the time in 1972, at the time that it was enacted, Title IX was, only earned about 9% of all medical degrees, and now that is also about half. Um, But on to sports, though. Sports, according to the NCAA, are educational programs, as you probably know, and this is a subject of a whole other episode of this podcast, perhaps. Because they're educational programs, the athletes are therefore codified as student athletes, which is the reason why, of course, they're not paid. Where they should be or not, like I said, that's a subject of a different podcast. But because sports are considered to be educational programs, a Title IX that, that, that outlawed any sort of discrimination in any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, that, of course, is going to include sports programs. Um, and so you can see huge impacts that Title IX has had on the growth of sports for girls and for young women uh, over the course of the past 40-plus years. In 1972, only one out of every 27 girls played on high school varsity sports teams. Uh, now it's about one out of every two um, now, when I say high school varsity sports teams, that means sports that have a varsity team. That doesn't mean necessarily that they play on the varsity team. They could play on the JV team or on the freshman team. But a high school varsity sport, only one out of every 27 played in 1972, and now it's one out of every two girls uh, play a high school varsity sport. Um, at the time, in 1972, there was only about 32,000 women only 32,000 women competing at the intercollegiate level. Uh, Virtually none of them were on scholarship, by the way. Uh, Now there's just under 200,000 women competing at the collegiate level in intercollegiate sports. As I said, athletic scholarships were virtually non-existent prior to Title IX. Uh, Now there's uh, over 10,000 athletic scholarships awarded to women to compete on the collegiate level every single year. Um, There's still work to do. Women still, despite these major strides, have not quite caught up with men. Um, In Division I colleges, women make up about 53% of the student body. Now that alone, by the way, is a huge accomplishment, um, and that that represents some progress, even though there are some some myriad issues with that. But uh, only 41% of the athletes are... Uh, in the Division One colleges are women. Uh, so the student body is 53% women, but the athletes are only 41% women. Uh, there's about 460,000 total athletes in the NCAA 
uh, all told. Uh, about 200,000 of them, as I said before, are women. Uh, women only get about 36% of the money, um, and they only get about 32% of recruiting dollars, um, despite the fact that they make up 41% of the athletes, which in itself is an underrepresentation. They don't even get 41% of the money. Um, all told, men end, up, men end up receiving about $133 million more per year than women do in athletic scholarships. Um, Title IX, of course, is controversial. Uh, it has come under a lot of criticism. I certainly have heard a lot of that criticism. And I heard it when I was in college, given that I was on a men's non-revenue sports team, which is where a lot of that criticism tends to be concentrated. Um, the reason why it tends to be concentrated there is because a lot of people have said that that Title IX is responsible for the cutting of men's sports programs throughout the United States. Well, if you have to get parity, if you have to offer as many opportunities to women, well, that means you have to lower the number of opportunities for men uh, in order to make it equal. Um, in fact, Title IX doesn't require the cutting of any men's sports programs at all. It simply says you need to have as many athletic opportunities for women as you do for men. And in fact, 72% of colleges and universities that have added women's teams since 1972 have done so without cutting any of the teams for men. Um, 72%, by the way, is also the amount of money that football and basketball consume in Division I sports budgets. College and universities cut wrestling teams and cross-country teams and other teams like that, not because of Title IX, but because they'd rather pay money into football and basketball. When I look back at my time at Georgia Tech, not having a scholarship until my senior year, I don't blame the fact that I didn't have a scholarship on the fact that a women's softball player did have a scholarship. I blame the fact that I didn't have a scholarship on the fact that the fourth string punter on the football team did have a scholarship. Um, What's more, further, the number of baseball, football, lacrosse, and soccer teams has actually grown since 1972, significantly as a matter of fact. So men as a group still today have more opportunities than women do. Even as we've added more spots, if you will, in Division I athletics for women, we've added a whole lot more for men in terms of baseball, football, lacrosse, and soccer. Um, and so men still far outnumber women uh, at the Division One level and throughout the NCAA, as a matter of fact. Um, so that being said, and against that, um, I think that we can also talk a little bit about some of the research about women and sports. Um, what influence does, does sports have on the growth of women and girls? Um, you're probably familiar with some of these things. You've probably heard some of these things before. High school girls who play sports are less likely to be involved in an unintended pregnancy. They have lower uh, rates of, of, of unintended pregnancies. They're more likely to get better grades in school, uh, and they're more likely to graduate than girls who don't play sports. Um, girls and women who play sports have higher levels of confidence and self-esteem, and they have lower levels of depression. Uh, girls and women who play sports have a more positive body image, uh, and they have better, uh, higher states of psychological well-being uh, than girls and women who don't play sports. Um, uh, as little as four hours, it's been shown, of exercise a week can reduce a risk of bre- breast cancer by up to 60%. And so if you get girls involved in sports at an earlier age, they're more likely to continue a sporting life, a healthier lifestyle that could actually reduce the, re- the, the risk of breast cancer by up to 60%. One out of every, every eight women in the United States ultimately gets afflicted with breast cancer. So reducing that chance is, is significant. Um, it also reduces the chance of osteoporosis. Uh, as you might be aware, women reach, and men too, reach peak bone density around the age of 25. 
Um, and one way to increase your peak bone density is, of course, through getting calcium, but it's also through doing weight-bearing exercises. And so your bones will be stronger when you're 25 if you've done athletics when you were 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, um, because doing more exercise makes your bones stronger, uh, as we actually talked about in a, uh, in a, in a previous podcast. Um, 40% of women over the age of 50 suffers from osteoporosis. 40% of women over the age of 50. And that number can be reduced, and the chance of getting osteoporosis can be reduced if a girl participates in sports from a young age. Another kind of interesting wrinkle is considering the skills that girls can learn from sports that boys have traditionally learned from sports. Um, Some of them apply directly in the workplace. And so if you end up getting women more involved in sports, they'll be better able to perform in the workplace and better able to reach higher levels of of employment. Um, There's a foundation called the Women's Sports Foundation. It was actually founded by by Billie Jean King herself, a pioneering uh, female athlete, uh, that cited 10 different things that men learn through sports that women might not learn if they don't compete in sports. And they're all kind of very interesting things. Uh, First, they say that, that men learn that Teams are chosen based on people's strength and competencies rather than who is liked and disliked. Um, That's something that that men learn via their participation in sports that they can apply in a work setting that women don't necessarily always learn. They tend to want to base their teams on who their friends are, even if those uh, friends might not be the most competent people to help them accomplish a particular task. Uh, Another thing, they said that successful players are skilled in practicing the illusion of confidence. And this is something that a lot of you have probably heard before, that men tend to pretend that they know how to do something even when they don't know how to do it. Um, whereas women don't tend to want to pretend that they know how to do something when they don't know how to do it. Um, Men, therefore, end up getting more promotions because they're better at faking it until they make it than women are, and that's a skill that you actually learn on the field of play. Uh, Similarly, boys believe that they can meet a new challenge of a new position and can learn by doing, whereas women only believe that they should advance to a new position uh, once they've been trained, once they've been certified, once they actually have the background for it. Men are more willing to put themselves out there and learn on the job um, to, to, like I said, fake it till they make it than than, than women are. Um, And in part, that might be because of their participation in sports uh, being at higher rates than than women. Um, Errors are expected of people who are trying to do new things. That's something that men might know that women might not really appreciate and understand. Um, Loyalty to teammates being a very important thing. Um, An understanding of hierarchical organizations Um, might be something that you would learn better participating in sports um, that you wouldn't learn if you don't participate in sports. Um, And thereby, boys might be able to to gain that skill better than girls would. Um, Winning and losing has nothing to do with your worth as a person. Um, If you play sports as a young person, you're going to lose games and you're going to still feel okay about yourself afterwards. Um, Whereas a woman who does not grow up playing sports, a girl who does not grow up playing sports, might not ever learn that. Um, If girls grow up playing sports, they will learn that and they'll be able to actually apply it in the workplace. Pressure, deadlines, and competition are fun is another thing that they suggest that that, that people who participate in sports learn uh, that can be applied in the workplace. Um, the confidence that comes from still being able to perform when you're at your limits um, is yet another thing that sports teaches us um, that can be applied in the workplace. And then finally, uh, the attention to detail that's necessary for high achievement. Um, That is something that some people learn on the field of play 
um, and other people don't learn because they never take part in organized sports. Um, those things are things that the Women's Sports Organization, Women's Sports Foundation that I mentioned, founded by Billie Jean King, argues that boys tend to learn at a higher rate than girls because boys tend to play sports more often. If we can encourage girls to play sports more often, they would learn these things as well. They could apply them in the workplace. Um, and ultimately, that would benefit all of us. Um, if girls were able to achieve in the workplace to the same degree that boys are, it would raise the ship, uh, raise the tide for everyone, uh, such that that our workplaces in general would be more productive and and better places to be. Um, another kind of wrinkle in looking at all of these things is considering the research that's currently being done. Uh, and the research that has been done over the course of the past 25 years because more women started coming into sports. Prior to Title IX and prior to a whole lot of women competing in sports, there was either not a whole lot of interest or there just wasn't a great deal of, of focus on, on women athletes. Um, and now, over the course of the past 25 years, because so many more women have become to compete, we have been able to do a whole lot more research on them. And we've learned all sorts of really interesting things. Uh, we've learned that men and women, for example, experience similar relative strength and fitness gains uh, when they're training under the same program. And that's both with strength training and with aerobic training. Um, they have the same strength and fitness gains, uh, relative strength, uh, fitness games, uh, gains if you put them in the same program. Um, we've also learned, which might be a relief to some people, that, that uh, women don't tend to pack on bulky muscles when they improve their strength in the same way that men do. Men, in order to get stronger, sometimes have to add muscle mass, whereas women don't have to add muscle mass in order to get stronger. Um, we found that women in general have a reduced oxygen carrying capacity, um, and they have more essential body fat naturally. Um, we have also found that, that their running economy is the same as men, generally speaking. Um, and if you look at the differences in performance between men and women in running races, most of that difference can be accounted for by looking at the reduced oxygen carrying capacity and the higher essential body fat. Um, the reason why we know that was sort of an interesting thing is that if you account for those three factors, if in other words, if you find a man and a woman who have the same percentage of body fat, you had a man and a woman that have the same running economy, um, and you have a man and a woman that have the same oxygen carrying capacity, they'll run the same times. Um, and so literally, uh, in that order, actually, as a matter of fact, um, oxygen carrying capacity, body fat, then running economy, those three things are the reason why uh, women tend to have 10% differences 10% um, slower tend to be their best times. Um, that 10% distance, by the way, holds across distances. There was a time back in the early 1990s um, when we were looking at men's and women's performances, and we found that men tended to uh, run faster at shorter distances, and then women started to kind of catch up a little bit around the marathon, and then maybe around the ultra marathon tended to pass men. Uh, Tim Noakes, who's a pretty controversial guy who's actually on trial right now in South Africa for something we'll talk about later on, uh, uh, actually wrote a paper in the mid-1990s that said that 90K, 90 kilometers, that was the turning point. That was the place where women would start doing better than men would. Um, and we since have learned as more women have started running ultramarathons, um, that that 10% difference holds all the way from 1,500 meters up to 1,000 kilometers. Um, so even in the ultra distances, there's about a 10% uh, difference there. Now, that might be a little bit of a bummer to think that, okay, there's not this magic place where women are now going to be able to be faster than men. Um, but 
I actually see it as a positive thing because to me it reflects the fact that women are now participating at higher levels or at least at levels that are comparable to men uh, in ultra-distance races. Um, there also We also learned one other kind of last thing here. There appear to be no differences in relative increases in VO2 max for men and women when they're trained under the same intensity, frequency, and duration. So in other words, this idea that you need to, to, to be softer on women, you need to be gentler on women because they're women is false. Um, what determines whether you treat somebody tough or treat somebody more gently is the individual athlete, their histories, um, and, and of course, their, their proclivities. Um, whether they're a man or a woman doesn't make any difference. You can give a man and a woman the same intensity, the same frequency, and the same duration, and the same results will come out the other side. Um, finally, I think it's worth saying here that there's some stories that are now being told. Um, now that, that, that women are participating more in sports, women are also participating now more in sports writing and in sports history. And so some kind of lost stories are now being told a little bit more. Um, there's a really good story about a woman named Vern Mitchell who, uh, who struck out both Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig back in 1931 that you should totally look up if you're a baseball fan. Um, if you're a fencer, and I actually taught a student several years ago who was a fencer, she was great. Um, there was a fencer named Helene Mayer. Uh, she won the NCAA championship in 1938. Um, and then it was revoked the next day, uh, because she was a woman. Um, but, more germane to the audience of this podcast is the story of a woman named Roberta Gibb, um, Bobby Gibb, she went by. Um, she was the first woman ever to run the 1966 Boston Marathon. Boston Marathon is one week from tomorrow. The Boston Marathon is coming up pretty soon here. Now, a lot of people think they know who the first woman to run the Boston Marathon was. They think it was a woman named Catherine Switzer. Catherine Switzer was great. She was the second woman to run the Boston Marathon. Um, as a matter of fact, when... Catherine Switzer was trying to talk her boyfriend into letting her sign up for the Boston Marathon, which, by the way, is indicative of where women were at the time that you had to ask your boyfriend to sign up for a race. He said that she couldn't run it, um, and she said, of course I can run it, of course women can run it. A woman did it just last year, as a matter of fact. Um, Roberta Gibb, Bobby Gibb, in 1966, she had seen the race in 1964, uh, was inspired by it, trained for it really hard, went out and did multiple 30-mile runs, as a matter of fact. Um, sent in a letter, said, I'd like to, to, to apply. Only about 500 or 600 people actually uh, did the race at the time, which is hard to believe these days, um, and received a letter back from the, the race director that said, quote, this is an AAU men's division race only. Women aren't allowed, and furthermore, they're not physiologically able. Now, unquote. That, that, that strikes me, not for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is, why'd you even need that last little bit? Why'd you need to go with the not physiologically able part? You could have just left it at it's a men's race only, but you had to go and insult her, didn't you? And so, as you might imagine, that fired her up. She, um, she lived in San Diego at the time. She had grown up in and around Boston. Her dad was a, a professor at MIT. Um, and so she flew back in time for the race, um, put on a hooded sweatshirt and shorts, hid in the bushes when the race began, and then she jumped in and ran along. Um, the men kind of noticed her, and she said that she was worried about taking off her sweatshirt because she might get outed as a, as a woman and they might throw her out of the race. And the men were cool with it. They thought it was okay. Uh, she was running three, sub-three-hour pace for most of it, um, but she fueled really poorly. 
Um, she struggled up Heartbreak Hill, um, and she ultimately ended up running 321. Now, 321 is no time to sneeze at here. Today, that's about 13 or 14 minutes faster than what the qualifying standard is for the 18 to 34 age group for women. And so she would qualify today more than 40 years later um, if she ran the time that she ran back then. Uh, And that was 1966. And at the time, she was greeted really warmly. Like, word spread while she was running the race that there was a woman in the race and people were fired up. Like when she got to Wellesley at halfway, the women were going completely nuts. The she went down Boylston Street at the finish, and the fans were going crazy. And they're all high fiving herself. The uh, mayor of the city of Boston met her at the finish line and shook her hand. They wrote articles about her in the newspaper. She was like a worldwide celebrity. She went on game shows and stuff. Um, the next year she went back and she won it again in 1967. The next year she went back in 1968. She won it again in 1968. Um, in 1967, Catherine Switzer also ran. Um, she was the second place woman that year. She finished about an hour behind um, uh, Roberta Gibb. Um, but for some reason, Switzer has the story that's known. Switzer signed up for the race using her initials, KV Switzer. Um, she got a number for the race and she started the race. And, and part of the way through the race, the race director at the time, a guy named Jock Simple, tried to jump in and, and throw her, literally physically remove her from the race. Um, and her boyfriend, Arnie, the one who told her that, that, that she couldn't do it, uh, actually gave him a shoulder block and, and, and she kept on running. She ultimately finished the race as well. Um, for some reason, Catherine Switzer is noted and often referred to as the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. Now, yes, she was the first woman to get a number and to officially start and finish the Boston Marathon. Um, But the Boston Marathon has a long history of bandits in its race, a long history of people who jump in the race despite the fact they don't have numbers. Uh, Still today, a a great deal of the field will be running from behind um, without qualifying times and without numbers. And so the idea that, that... you had to have a number in order to be an official starter or finisher, and that that, that Roberta Gibbs Marathon doesn't count uh, because she didn't have a number like Catherine Switzer did. It's just not quite congruent with 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 the notions around the Boston Marathon. So I wonder why it is that Catherine Switzer gets the nod as being first. Why is it that we want to take away Roberta Gibbs? achievement and instead give it to Catherine Switzer. And I don't totally know the answer to that. Uh, I'm going to continue to think about it over the course of next week. And I, I want you to to write on my Facebook wall or, or, or send me messages or, or bio, tweet me or whatever it happens to be. And let me know why you think that is. I have a couple of inklings and maybe we'll talk about them next week. Um, but, uh, but I'm still kind of mulling it over to my head. So back to the U.S. women's soccer team. As you probably know, the U.S. women's soccer team is fantastic. They won last year last year's Women's World Cup. They've won three consecutive Olympic gold medals, and they are the favorites to win again this summer uh, to win yet another Olympic gold medal. Uh, 25 million Americans watched them capture the world championship a year ago. 25 million Americans. A quarter million tickets were sold on the victory tour when they came back to the United States and, and played several exhibition games. Last Thursday, Thursday a week ago, five of the players filed an action with the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC. Uh, The EEOC, as you may know, investigates charges of race or sex-based discrimination in employment. And they basically said four things. They said, number one, there's a massive pay disparity between U.S. uh, men's and women's soccer teams. Number two, there's different bonus structures that are unfair to women. Number three, they have different travel accommodations. And they have number four, there's different services that they're asked to play on. Um... 
kind of go through them one by one really quickly here. Number one, the massive pay disparity. Women, the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, gets $3,600 per friendly match that they play. They play about 20 per year. That means their, their salary is about, their base salary is about $72,000 a year. The men get $5,000 for each of those 20 friendly games that they play throughout the course of the year. $3,600 versus $5,000 for the men. Number two, and this is actually where it starts to get kind of incredible, the different bonus structures. If the women win one of those 20 friendly games, they get $1,350 of bonus. If the men win one of those friendly games, they can get anywhere from $4,375 per win up to $12,625 for each one of those wins. $1,350 versus up to $12,625 that the men actually get. Now, in practice, if the women won every single one of the 20 friendly games that they play throughout the year, they would make $99,000 in bonuses. The men, if they won all 20 of the friendly games they would play, they would get $263,000 in bonuses. It's not even close. Now, in addition, in the World Cup, if the women were to get third in the World Cup, they get $20,000. If the men get third in the World Cup, which, by the way, they never do, they get $52,000. If the women get second in the World Cup, they get $32,500. The men would get $260,000 as a bonus, each man on the team. And finally, if the women win the World Cup, which they did, they get a $75,000 bonus, whereas the men, if they were to somehow pull it together and win the World Cup, they would get $390,000 extra. So backing up just a step, if the men got second in the World Cup, they would get about four times as much, about three and a half times as much as the women get for winning the World Cup. The women get a $75,000 bonus. That's it. Whereas the men would get a $390,000 bonus if they were to somehow pull it together and win the World Cup. Women also make less in sponsorship agreements and they take home a smaller percentage of the ticket revenues as well. Um, Third, they're asked to play on different surfaces. Um, You might know that last year the women's national soccer team prior to the World Cup actually filed suit internationally and said that it wasn't fair that men get to play on grass and that women get to play on injuries given that there are studies in soccer specifically that show there are higher injury rates on uh, turf than there is in in grass. and they were kind of brushed off, really. Um, they, were, they were kind of brushed aside on that. And so they've revisited here with with this particular lawsuit. Um, and then finally, the different travel accommodations. And this is the one that actually strikes me the most, even though it's not as glaring as the bonus differences that I just mentioned. Uh, the women get paid less per diem, the amount of money they get paid each day that they're traveling for a game. Um, if the women are traveling domestically for a game, they get paid $50 a day. Uh, to cover their incidentals like food and that sort of thing. The men get paid $62.50. $12.50 extra for the men. That would be uh, about 25% more that the men get each day if they're traveling domestically. Women get, if they're traveling internationally, $60 a day for food and incidentals. Men get $75 a day for food and incidentals if they're traveling internationally. What are men supposed to do with that extra 25%? Why is it that men are getting an extra 25% per day? What is the purpose of an extra 25%? Are men going to 
eat 25% more? Are men going to spend 25% more on souvenirs? Do men stay in 25% nicer accommodations? Do they take 25% more taxis? Why is it that you would give 25% more to men per diem? To me, there's no rationale for that whatsoever. And in fact, there's no rationale for any of it. It's completely indefensible. The women are a better team. They win more. They generate more revenue. They inspire more participation in the sport at the lowest levels, but they get paid demonstrably less. Why? Well, there can only be one reason why. It's because they're women. And we're carrying this mistaken notion that women shouldn't be there. Um, They should. They are. Uh, It's shameful, really. And I really wish good luck to all of them. I hope the EOC does the right thing and rules on their side. And that's our show. Next week, speaking of fantastic women, we have a fantastic woman who is an accomplished Ironman athlete and a physical therapist. Carrie Smith is going to be talking with us next week. If you have questions for Carrie, please send them to us and we will ask her. She's going to be talking to us about her approach to sports and injury prevention and all that sort of thing. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast, on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast, and on the blog, mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Check us out on iTunes. Give us a review on there, and please subscribe to us. Uh, follow ITL Coaching on Twitter, at ITL Coaching on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance, and online at itlcoaching.com. Lastly, don't forget about our other sponsor. Uh, that would be my wife, the Travel Planner, booking travel for people all over the place. On Facebook at facebook.com slash MEV, and, of course, on email at Casey, K-A-C-I-E, at U-G-A dot E-U. Thanks for listening.